By the time I get to my desk on Tuesday morning, I just, anything that happened this morning, there's a 50-50 chance that my brain will just have completely ejected that information. Just gone. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating. I don't think I'm alone in this, though. I understand that this limitation is pretty common. I have conversations with people about that. And so it's just part of the human condition. So I try not to beat myself up about it. Even though I've met, have you guys met those people that have like those perfect memories? Like photographic memories or something approaching that? And I I look at those people and I think, well, if they can do it, why not me? Why can't I have that? But I don't, I don't. So I'm okay, I'm okay with being a fallible human being. Most days I'm okay with that, most days. As we're continuing in our summer sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, we're going to talk about some struggles that the Israelites had with remembering, with remembering some pretty important things and some of the ways that they reminded themselves of what was important. So last week in our series, we heard how the Israelites assembled in Jerusalem to hear the law of Moses read. And for a lot of these people, because they had been in captivity, for some of them it was the first time that they were hearing the law in its entirety. So they, they heard that read. And, and coming into their new identity as the people of Israel with the wall rebuilt and they're returning to Jerusalem out of captivity, they knew that they wanted to do things differently than their ancestors had done because they had seen the devastation that was caused when they removed themselves out from under God's protection and they gave themselves over to the force of sin. They knew the havoc that was wreaked by that, that choice. And as they heard the law, they were deeply grieved. I mean, they were really just heartbroken because they understood how far they had, they had veered from what God's plan was and his heart for them. But we learned last week that, that it, seemed oddly, it, it seemed odd, it seemed like it didn't make sense that Ezra and Nehemiah and all the Levites that were present, um, they had some pretty specific instructions for the Israelites. They told them, don't grieve. Don't be sad anymore. Don't mourn over this. Instead, you're going to have a, just a gigantic celebration, a big party, because we're celebrating the fact that God's chosen people had chosen him again. They had chosen him afresh. And so that, that famous verse that's in that chapter, the joy of the Lord is my strength, the joy of the Lord is that the ones that he loves will be with him. And because that's true, you and I can find strength in our struggles because we know that we'll be accepted with open arms anytime we repent and we return. So we're going to fast forward a little bit Later in that same month, that was at the beginning of a month, and later in that same month, chapter 9 opens with the Israelites. They're once again, they're gathering together in a corporate assembly. They're all together. Um, And again, they're listening to, for an, an additional time, the law being read aloud. Again, they are publicly confessing the ways that they have fallen short of what's prescribed in the law. A few important details about the way that they were, were behaving as they gathered together. They were fasting. They were abstaining from food. It's, it's just a way of saying, you know, I'm putting my own, my own desires aside. They were wearing sackcloth, which is a coarse fabric, kind of like a burlap, and it's, it's meant to be rough on the skin and just remind you 
of some things. Um, they put dust on their heads to just, it's symbolic of from dust we were made and to dust we will return. It's, it's that kind of a, an imagery. But all of these, these physical actions were symbolic of like this internal reality that was happening. They were demonstrating the posture of their heart and, and their desire to say to God again, um, we are turning, we're changing our mind, we're turning away from our own way of doing life, and once again, we want to align ourselves with the law. And what follows for the rest of chapter 9 is this beautiful, beautiful, eloquent, poetic prayer. It's just a wonderful prayer, and the prayer is woven with the threads of the history of the people of Israel. And it was an important history. Why, why was it important? Why was the history important in this prayer? It was because it was history that reminded everyone that was gathered. Reminded is the word that I want you to hang on to. Reminded those gathered. And it can remind us today that this was a familiar position that they found themselves in. This wasn't the first time around the, around the block. It reminded the Israelites, and it can remind us today, of kind of the universal human condition and also the unchanging nature of God. So the prayer starts out with the declaration that God created the world and he gave breath to everything that lives. And it talks about why God chose Abraham to make that first covenant with and how that happened. It winds its way in the beginning there through their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Mentions, of course, the, the big one, the parting of the Red Sea where God you know, did this miraculous thing so that they could escape with their lives. Talks about their wandering in the wilderness of the desert after they had crossed the sea and they... they they had about a 40-year detour getting from one place to the other and wandered around. But it recounts the miraculous provision of God in that place. As they wandered in the wilderness, God gave them food that fell from the sky. Manna fell from the sky. And water came out of rocks where it hadn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it was a waterfall or something. It was like Moses hit the rock with his staff and miraculously water came forth. They found provision in the desert. And, and in almost that same breath, because it's just two sentences next to each other, the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai when he went to talk to God and, and ask what was expected of them, that is also described as another form of provision. Provision. The three words that they used in the passage to describe the law was just and right and good. So what are the Israelites doing with this prayer? What is this prayer doing? It is reminding them. They are reminding themselves of all the amazing things that God has done for them. They are reminding themselves of all God has done. But there's something else that they need to remind themselves of. And so we're going to look a little bit further in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. Just the, the first little bit for now of, of verse 17. 
So it says this, but they, our ancestors, as the Israelites are talking about themselves, they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. After all God had done to get them out of their predicament, they, they got scared and they said, well, we need to go back. And they appointed a leader to help them do that. The history of Israel was absolutely dominated all throughout their, their, their life as a people by this, this cyclical, repeated pattern of rebellion. And that becomes a theme of rem- remembrance as well. So in, in, this, in this instance, they are reminding themselves of their propensity for sin. They are reminding themselves of their propensity towards sin. So I want to look a little bit more closely at this cycle of sin. This is this dance that Israel did with God throughout, throughout their history. Um, it looks like this. If that one's a little bit hard to read, there's also a copy of that in your grape if that's a little bit easier for you. But you can see there at the, at the top of the cycle, like that's where everything's good with the relationship with God. Everything's like, it's cool, it's even. We're, we're in right standing, right relationship. Everything is, is, is cool between God and Israel. And then, you know, moving on to the next little bit, that's where they do their own thing. They, they, for whatever reason, there's a variety of reasons in different stories, you know, what it was that they were scared of or what it was that they, you know, lusted after or wanted or, you know, ways that they tried to take care of themselves. But they decided they're going to do their own thing, which gets them into trouble, gets them into all kinds of trouble. And sometimes that was plagues and illnesses. Sometimes that was earthquakes that, you know, big canyons opened up in the, in the ground and they got swallowed up, sometimes that meant that they became captives to a foreign government, which is what happened in you know, our scenario in Nehemiah. They'd been taken captive by Babylon and then Babylon later taken over by um, Persia. So they get into trouble and they realize they're in trouble and so they come to their senses. They have this moment of, oh wait, wait, we are the people of God and he can help us. And so they, they ask him for help. And the way this worked in the Old Testament is that God would raise up a leader that would like facilitate the rescue. There were judges, there were kings, there were prophets, there were, there were people like Nehemiah that were kind of appointed to facilitate that deliverance from whatever form of oppression they were in at the time. And they, they become delivered, and then they make it to the top of the circle again. And, and everything's, you know, chill for a while. It's cool. That's the cycle of sin. And when they get to the top again, they're, they're determined they're going to serve God faithfully. So now, our, our group of people that's there in Nehemiah chapter 9, they've heard the law read out loud in the assembly in its entirety twice. So they would have heard passages like this one from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, where God says about his law, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. 
The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord, your God, that I'm giving you today. And the curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord, your God, and turn away from the way that I command you today. It's pretty clear. There's, there's not a lot of you know, room for confusion there. Blessing and a curse. This is what's set before you. You have your choices today. So they would have heard verses like that. And they would have absolutely understood the connection between the current captivity that they found themselves in and the way that they had made decisions about how they would live. Their failure as a people, as a whole, to keep the law. And so they are reminding themselves of this again. They're reminding themselves once again that what, what their, the reality of their condition was that they had an inherent, like a bent inside them, a pull and a draw toward sin, toward doing things their own way, toward turning away from God and what, what he had designed for them and the way he had design, designed them to live. It was embedded in their nature. Because remember, before Jesus came, before Jesus came, the best remedy that they had for the sin nature was to cover it. There was no permanent solution for the condition. It was an imperfect system involving, you know, the sacrifices of animals and all of these laws and these rituals, but the best that it did was cover it, so it was always there, and they needed to remind themselves of that. But their, their underlying nature remained unchanged. So do you think that on, on a good day, on their best day, that that's why the people of Israel were able to understand the law as provision, as a gift from God, because, once again, on, on their best day, when they were thinking clearly, they, they really understood their own vulnerability to the force of sin. It's an important question, I think, because in our culture, I, I think we, when, I know it happens to me, and maybe I'm just projecting on you guys, but I, I don't think I'm alone here. When we read chapters like this, we read passages like this, and in our current culture of like self-esteem is an important thing and whatever, we think, how can that possibly be healthy? How we, you know, you might have heard the phrase self-talk, and we talk about how the voices that, you know, the tapes that play in our head, you know, say you're not good enough, and you're never going to measure up, and all that stuff, and, and we recognize that as something that's unhealthy, that we should push away, and so when we read something like this, there's a little bit of a disconnect, like that's not healthy to, to consider your own faults and weaknesses um, to that extent, to like ruminate on it and think about it so much. But I want, I want you to just consider this, that self-awareness is a really important component in humility. And I love, I want you to listen to this quote from Mother Teresa that I love, that I think is just, I mean, she's so much more eloquent than me, and, and just a wonderful quote. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged 
And if they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. Because you know what you are. Self-awareness, you know what you are. The Israelites knew who they were. And they knew that they needed to remind themselves of that propensity towards sin in order for them to fully appreciate and fully remember and fully remind themselves of a third very important truth. So we're going to keep going in Nehemiah chapter 9, the last half of the verse 17 through 21. In verse 17 it says, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. Moses was gone for like five minutes and they were like, what are we gonna do? We don't have a God and no one to lead us. And so they made a cow and they bowed down and worshiped it. Even then, God did not abandon them even when they committed awful blasphemies. And why is that? Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, a pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path. That visible, tangible expression of God's presence was there and it did not leave. The pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. He provided for them. And verse 21 says, For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing that's, this is a fantastical, incredible, just bizarre verse. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, in the harshest of conditions. And it says they lacked for nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not become swollen. It's just amazing. The Israelites are reminding themselves who God is. Who he is. No matter what they did, God did not abandon them. No matter what. He continued to pursue them. He continued to intervene in their situations. And he continued to care for them. Not just with enough, but they lacked nothing. He provided opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for them to change their mind and return to him. And when they cried out to him, he heard them and he accepted them immediately. Not because of who they were, but because of who he is. There's a phrase that's sprinkled all throughout the book of Nehemiah that I just love. The phrase is, Covenant of love. And it says, it says the God who keeps his covenant of love. He keeps it. 
And an important thing to note about, about a covenant, because this can be a little bit of a cultural disconnect for us too, a covenant is not the same thing as a contract. We're familiar with the term contract. And a contract works like this, like I'm gonna do this and you're gonna do that. And if either one of us doesn't hold up our end of the deal, then we both are released from the agreement. That's how a contract works and that's what we're used to understanding. But that is not so with a covenant. And it was not so with God's covenant that he made with the people of Israel. So what they're saying when they're praying this prayer is they're reminding themselves that he is the God who keeps his covenant even when they are faithless. They're declaring out loud, they're reminding themselves that he is, as he told Moses, when, when Moses was, was interacting with him surrounding when, when the law was actually given, Moses said, I wanna see your glory. And glory just, I think, means that which makes God recognizable as God. That's, that's a good working definition of glory. How do we know it's him? What is he like? How do we recognize him? That's his glory. And when Moses wanted to see his glory, God told Moses that he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Abounding in love. Love is what keeps him bound to his covenant. The covenant of love. And he keeps it even when they fail. So I hope by now, as we're talking through some of this, I hope that by now there's at least like a little tickle of recognition in the back of your mind. Because this cycle is not something that's unique to Old Testament Israel. It's not. I don't know about you, but this is the story of my life. This is the story of my life and my dance with God and my journey with God. Trying to be good with every, every bit of, of energy and will that I could muster inside myself, trying to be good, failing, failing. I can't, I can't, I can't be good. I would want my own way, make my own choices, choose my own desires, and get myself into trouble. Get myself into a mess. And then ask Jesus, who Jesus, by the way, is, is the for now and, and from now on, the deliverer in this cycle. There's no need for, for judges and prophets and kings and all of that anymore because Jesus is for now and from now on, the deliverer of everyone. But asking Jesus, will you help me clean up this mess that I made of my life? Will you help me with this? And then once again, recommitting to align my ways with his ways and and most importantly, my heart with his heart. Can, Can you recognize this cycle in your own life? Does this sound familiar? Yeah. But here's something that I had to learn about this that's really important. It's really important to understand this. Otherwise, I think I, I found, and maybe you would find too, that 
if we don't understand this that I'm about to say, we'll get really confused and discouraged with our efforts, with our journey. So listen, for a lot of years I thought that I would complete this cycle. There would be an end. Like finally I would, I would get good enough that I wouldn't have to go around again. Like I'd be done, I'd be all set. But it turns out that the truth is, even though there are many kind of tendencies or behaviors that I've had in my life where I've, I've gained some measure of victory or, or freedom or however you want to describe that, I have changed as a person, I have grown. But there's, there's always something else, isn't there? There's always like, what is next? Or sometimes even, oh no, oh no, not this thing again. I thought I was done with that. But here it comes again in a different form, wearing some different clothes. But we're never finished with this cycle. Is that you, you guys too? You guys too? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know what? That's okay. Can I just say that to you? It really is. It really is okay. Because, because here, here is what is true. The goal is not to be good. That's not, the, that's not the goal. That's not what we're after. The goal is a relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God that results in our transformation. That's something that happens to us results in our transformation that benefits those that are around us. It benefits us individually because we're more free and it benefits those that we're in relationship with and have influence over. That's been God's plan for the beginning. From the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, what did he do? He wanted to spend time with them. He walked with them in the garden, talked with them, had that companionship and that intimacy and they went about their day caring for the garden, stewarding the world, and making the world, shaping it into what God had envisioned it would be. That was the plan. That was his heart. And in eating from that one tree that was off limits, you know, they made a choice that what it did was it unleashed this force into the universe. A terrible force. And sin is really, it's best understood as a force in the universe. It's a, it's a condition rather than a behavior. Now, behaviors are, are part of it. They're part of the whole thing. Don't, don't mishear me. Behavior is a part of it, but the behavior is mostly an expression of that condition or that force. And that's a condition that God has been trying to rescue us from ever since it entered the world. That's his heart, to rescue us. He's been trying to provide for us everything that he can possibly bring to bear, everything that we need to get back to that original plan that plan of walking with him and changing the world. 
And that's why he gave the Israelites the law in the first place. That was the purpose of the law. It's not because he's this egotistical control freak who hates shrimp. It's because he wanted to provide a way for them to maintain relationship with him. And so that they they could be a blessing to the world around them. The law was provision for that. And that's why Jesus came to die and be resurrected so that he could once and for all defeat that sin nature, that inherent nature of humanity that, that, and, and rescue us from that condition. And so now we can have unhindered access to God. It's possible for each and every one of us. And we get the opportunity to partner with him and advance his kingdom all throughout the, the world to make, to make our world, to make this world, to make our families and our cities and our churches and everything that we come in contact with look more like he wants it to look. That's the opportunity that we have. And we can spread the truth that he is a gracious and compassionate God. And he wants to reconcile the whole world to himself. That's the plan. And that's the goal. But transformation is still a process for us, isn't it? It's a process. Just like the Israelites, we sometimes choose our own way still. And we get ourselves into trouble. And we need help. But that's what we need to remember. Help is right there. Every single time, help is right there. Because God who never changes is still the God who keeps the covenant of love with us. He keeps up his end of the deal no matter what we do to screw it up. He keeps up his end of the bargain. As long as we still want him and we still choose him, he never backs out and he never backs away. I'll finish with a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Timothy was a letter that Paul wrote to kind of his uh, apprentice. It was a, a younger leader that he was mentoring. This from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He is faithful. He is faithful. As long as, as long as we have not rejected him completely and said, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with you. You know, it, he gives us our choices. That's what this is saying. God gives us our choices. If our choice is that we don't want to have relationship with him, he, he'll respect us. He's a boundaries kind of guy. But if we're faithless, he will remain faithful to us because he can't disown himself It's just beautiful language. We need to continually remind ourselves that this is true. We need constant reminders of this. 
So something I love about this passage that I learned fairly recently, not too long ago, is that these verses from Timothy, this was probably a song. It was probably an early church hymn. And if, you, you know, if you're looking in your paper Bible, it's, it's kind of indented and it's got a different kind of formatting and that's the reason. It was probably a song. So I love that because they, they sung songs to remind themselves of who God was. And we do the same thing. We did that this morning, didn't we? We sing songs to remind ourselves about God's love for us and, and, and his faithfulness. We sang that song about his fiery love, his passionate love that is just overwhelming and he lavishes on us. We sang about being sure of his faithfulness. Just as sure as we are that the sun is going to come up in the morning, we are sure that God is faithful. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we really believe that, and sometimes it's a little bit harder to make that declaration. But the purpose of the music, you guys know this because you can remember jingles from commercials that you saw when you were three, that music has its way of, of like burning itself into our brain, into our automatic memory. And so that's why these songs are so important, these songs that are prayers to God. Because it helps us remind ourselves. It's the same reason that the Israelites gathered together to hear prayers full of their history. We need to remind ourselves of the wonderful things that God has done in our life. We need to remind ourselves of who we are without him, the kind of mess that we get ourselves into if we're kind of going our own way and making our own choices without consulting, you know, the creator of the universe that may know a thing or two. And most of all, we need to remind ourselves of his absolute goodness and his unfailing love. And when we remember that, that's when we can sing like the first song that we sang. We say, yes, we give you our yes, God. We can give our yes to him because we know that he is trustworthy, that he has our best interest in mind. We can trust him because we know that his motivation is love. And we know that what we get out of the covenant of love, what we get out of the deal it is so far beyond, so much more valuable than anything that we would have to let go of or give up. So much more valuable. It's a pretty sweet deal. And because all of those things are true, we can respond to him like the Israelites did at the end of the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9. And it, they say, and it's kind of in an understated kind of way, this last verse of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38 says, In view of all this, everything that they had just heard and prayed and declared and affirmed and reminded themselves of, in view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement with you. We're putting it in writing and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. A binding agreement. They were putting it in writing. So a secret is, is that even though 
they were determined to follow God faithfully, absolutely sincere in this moment, they had to go around the cycle again too. But over and over and over again, God is faithful. He accepts them when they return. And the same is true of, true of us. In view of all we know about who God is, we would do well to offer him our yes, to make our binding agreements with him over and over and over again, every time. Let's pray.